Good morning. All right, we are um, studying through for uh, a time uh, what we believe. That's the title of the series. We normally come at the scriptures from a biblical theological perspective, teaching through various books, connecting uh, all the dots to the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and his salvation and his rule. But we also find it necessary sometimes to come at a systematic theological uh, approach where we take topics and we study through them with the scriptures as our guide. So that's what we are doing for a while as we study through what we believe. We studied revelation, that is how we know what is true. We studied God as Trinity and the implications of that. And now we're going to study today and the next week the image of God in man and those implications. This is an important study as there's no unimportant person in this room or on this planet. Everyone is either an eternal splendor or an eternal horror. There are no mere mortals. None. And so, as we look at the image of God in us, I've asked a series of questions. So my methodology this morning is going to be to ask some questions and then answer those questions. We're going to be all over our Bibles. And if you have one, uh, go quickly. I'm going to post these notes online after the service so you can go and reference. But go as quick as you can. And if you can't keep up, no worries. I'm going to read them for you. This may take a little longer than normal. I'm trying to be less verbose, but I'm also trying... To be accurate. And sometimes you just can't do justice to the image of God in man in 35 to 40 minutes. So I'm going to do my very best. And, uh, and so I trust you'll hang in there with us a little bit. So the first question I want to ask us this morning is this. Why did God make us? Why did God make us? There's a few questions before we talk about what does the image of God in us look like. We need to know why we were created. Because those are intimately connected. So why did God make mankind? I think it's safe to say on the front end, God didn't make us Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now remember, all the doctrines of the faith are interconnected, right? They're not isolated from one another. As we talk about God in Trinity, we need to remember God is not lonely. God isn't seeking fellowship because he's hanging out in some cosmic house somewhere and he's going, geez, I'm alone. This is really bad. God did not do that. As a matter of fact, we can see very clearly in John 17, 5 and John 17, 24, God is perfectly content with himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share perfect fellowship. And as we said last week, the basis of Christian fellowship is Trinitarian in nature in that we're created in the image of Trinity in relationship. And therefore, our intimate connection to one another is a Trinitarian issue of our relationship to one another connected to Jesus Christ. In Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here we get a glimpse into that relationship as Jesus in his high priestly prayer prays for you, prays for me. John 17, 5. The Lord said, and now, Father, he's speaking to the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Does God sound lonely? No. Father and Son and Spirit perfectly relating to one another, sharing glory God's not lonely. You could even see verse 24, same chapter. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Wow, that's rich. 
God, the very definition of love, loving each other, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect love, unconditional union with one another. God's not lonely. So why did God create us? Isaiah 43, 7, among other passages, I'm not going to go through because time sake, uh, you would be here an hour and a half. Isaiah 43, 6-7, listen to what God says when He's speaking about bringing His people back as He promised when He sent them away. He made a promise He's going to bring them back. And here's the reason. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why were you created? You were made for His glory. You were made to display in you the weightiness and majesty of a triune God. This is why there are no mere mortals sitting in this room. All of you are created in the image of a Trinitarian God. And He made you for His praise. Which is one of the reasons, I don't know if you notice, those of you who are members and you're on the membership page, and I don't know any other way to put this out to everybody who attends, so I just do the very best I can. There's a quote I love from Ray Ortland about Christian worship. And it's this, Christian worship needs to be and should be loud, unprofessional, raucous, like an Irish pub, joyfully defiant. Why? Because we are fighting sin that breaks that and restored in Christ. Our song is imaging forth as Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17, the God who shouts and sings over His people. So when we sing, we're reflecting back the image of God in us, raucously, joyfully defiant against sin. Which is why when we sing, I'm a little hoarse or I've been scream singing. It don't have to be pretty, but it needs to be defiant against what breaks the image of God in us. Because God sings, we sing. And anything fighting that, you fight against it. That's what it means to be created in the image. Just one of the things it means to be created in the image of God is we sing because He sings. So when something sits on that and makes you want to not do that, have enough Image in you to be joyfully defiant. So I will sing anyway. Mm, stubborn. Right? Sing. Because we were made like that for His glory. And you are best living to that when you're glorifying the God you were made to glorify. And Satan wants to fight that. So be joyfully defiant. Scream sing. And if it's not loud enough in the back, tell these cats to turn it up. Because sometimes scream singing like me, it's better right here because this is a loudspeaker. And I don't know that anybody can hear me. Right? And so I know some of us are a little funky about that. If people can hear us, we can... Right? And if it ain't loud enough, ask somebody to turn it up and scream sing. It's one of the ways you will image forth God today. And that's kind of funny, but it's kind of serious. Because what's at stake today is God's glory. You were made for that. Right? You're made for that. So, second question. Did the fall into sin destroy the image of God in man? Genesis 9, 6 says this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, why? For God made man in his own image. So even after the fall, even after the flood, we see that man still bears the image of God. 
So did the fall into sin destroy the image of God in man? No. It broke the image of God, but we are still made in the image of God. It is broken, not destroyed. Which is why we act like sinners. Which is why Jesus came to restore, heal, fix, redeem, and make us so that we perfectly image forth God as He, in Christian language, sanctifies us, cleans us up in this process of living the Christian life and makes us more like Himself. So no, the image of God isn't lost, it is broken. Third question, does Jesus repair the broken image of God in us when he saves us? Yes, exclamation point. Yes. Listen to Colossians 3, 9 to 10. Do not lie to one another. We actually looked at this passage last week. It's one of the one another passages. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So when Jesus saves a human being, he takes out a cold, dead heart and puts in a new heart and places his spirit in them, he begins the process of restoring completely the image that was broken. And notice his means. This is a whole different sermon. It's one of the challenges of doing systematic theology is you just can't do it justice in the time you have because words mean things, Right? And words and sentences mean things. And words and sentences and paragraphs mean things. And words and sentences and paragraphs and chapters mean things, right? They can't mean what you want it to mean. It means what it means, what the author intended it to mean, right? And there's a word here. It's renewed in knowledge. Meaning, knowing God is the key to being restored. It's not how you feel. Feelings will lie to you. Feelings will cheat you. It is what you know. If you came in here thinking worship was going to happen based on how you feel, we can't fix that. But if you came in here hungry to know God and to have the image of God restored because lies break un, lies break things and lies are untruths and untruths break the human soul. But when you apply truth to brokenness, knowledge of truth, God begins to fix and repair. We're soaked in a context that values feelings above truth. And how we feel is not necessarily what is right. And so know this, that we are being renewed, if we're in Christ, through repentance and faith, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of Jesus Christ, who is our Creator. So regardless of how you feel right now, know feeling is not what fixes you. It is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, grinded out over years of faithful obedience that has reparative and restorative effect, which is why it's important we teach the truth, which is why it's important we open our Bibles and see what God has to say. Next, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? So what exactly does it mean to be made in the image of Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you a definition, and in the notes you'll see the footnote. You'll see... The source of this definition. It's not the definition. It's a definition. There are many good definitions. This is just the one I chose to use. Okay. So here we go. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Here you go. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. Well, where does that definition come from? It comes from Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Listen to this passage. Because there are two key words we need to get our hands around to help us understand being like God and representing God. Then God said, let us 
Let us, us, make man in our image. After our likeness. And then he gives the creation mandate. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means to image forth and to represent. These two key words are important. Image and likeness. Likeness meaning to represent. Image literally means to shade. It means to shade. Not throw shade. Right? Like, Georgia Tech got beat by a triple option team yesterday. That's throwing shade. Tech people, John, <coughs> Jim, right? That's throwing shade. That's not what this means. Dig, dig, dig. And you can't get me back right now. Here we go. That's throwing shade. That's not what this means. So the image is to shade, meaning if I'm standing in the sun, like even right now, this light back here is casting a shade. If, if, if I were God and that were created... Humans, in God's image, that would be the human, this would be God. So the idea of being created in His image means to shade, meaning if God cast a shadow, the shadow would be us. That's the illustrative language used here. So it means to be a semblance of. So we image forth God like a shadow is an image of the actual thing. Distinct from, not the same, but like. Rather mysterious. The word likeness means to be similar. Meaning carrying similar traits. So we shadow God. But we also carry the traits of the God that we shadow. That's all the Bible says about it. <sighs> well, I would, wouldn't you love it if just sometimes the Lord inspired a verse... That just said, the image of God is boom, 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 boom. And you're like, awesome. Now we can go home. That's not what he does. Image of God, likeness of God, meaning we are a shadow of and we are similar to. So then we got to ask this question and use the rest of our Bibles to answer it. How do we image forth God? How is it we're a shadow of? And what exactly does it mean that we are similar to and what exactly is it that Jesus is renewing? If that shadow's broken, if the similarities are broken, not destroyed, what are the similarities? What are the likenesses? And how's Jesus fixing that? Think that's a good question? Yes, very good question. Note, I put it here, note, all caps. This is an impossible task to do in the 21 minutes we got left. Impossible. Can't happen. So the best thing we can do is start with Genesis one twenty six. And work our way through some implications quickly. And trust the Holy Spirit as priests of the Lord that you are to go and study your Bible. Read and take it where it needs to go. So here we go. Number one. How do we shadow God? How do we image forth? And what is Jesus fixing? We are vice regents. And I recognize that word does not translate into our context. And if you thesaurus vice regents, it gives you pope. Negative. Not using that one. Right? So, we are vice regents. Meaning we are representative manager rulers. We are representatives. We're not co. We are vice rulers with God. 
Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the creation mandate that we've read already. Let us create man in our image, in the image of God. He created us. And what did he do? He set us over created order to multiply, have dominion over, fill, and manage. Meaning, one of the first ways we image forth God is we are his vice regents. We are his representatives to rule over created order. A friend of mine is in the fiber mill business in Andrews, North Carolina. And he sent me a script that he is using to train other fiber mill companies who take exotic fibers and spin them into yarn that they sell to companies who make things with them. And he's training these people from a Christian worldview on the creation mandate to rule over, fill, and have dominion. He did a little research. This is absolutely blowing my mind. I'm going to blow your mind. Do you understand that 95% of the world's population dwells in 1% of the earth's acreage? Just let that sit on you a minute. 95% of the world's population dwells on 1% of the earth's acreage. At the current population of the earth, if we were to equally divide out the land among us, over 7 billion people, each person would have roughly 57 acres apiece. You think we're overpopulated? Negative. Negative. That's a worldview. That's not the Bible. Right? Meaning we have as God's representatives a command to fill the earth, subdue it, and multiply in it. That smells like Babel, doesn't it? Let us make a name for ourselves and gather on the plain and build tall buildings, lest we be scattered over the face of the earth. You need to connect that back to chapter 1. No, fill the earth and subdue it. Rebellion against God. So one of the ways we are like God and we image Him forth is we are His representatives on earth to manage it, to fill it and subdue it. It's your job, by the way. It's your job. It's my job. Right? So our vocations, right, are important. I'm getting into applications. I gotta move. I got applications coming. Here we go. So second way, second way. Um, we are now ethical. We are ethical. <laughs> We're ethical people. Now I put in some notes here, this is important, and it's probably gonna open a can of worms, and I apologize, but I gotta say it. Morals, we're not just moral people. Morals define good and bad as distinguished by cultural norms. We don't operate by cultural norms. Cultural norms shift with time. Ethics, however, defines what is right and wrong based on a standard outside of cultural norms. That's a Christian perspective on what's right and wrong, not morals. Morals shift with time. Morals shift with cultures. Ethics are fixed and based on something outside of time and space. And because God is outside of time and space and He created all things, including us in His image, there are rights and wrongs. And as His representatives, we have the basis of ethical formation. That's probably more heady than you came here for today. But it's what it means to be created in the image of God. God sets the standard of right and wrong. And as His image bearers, we are to be the... People who propagate ethical norms. Which is why Christians should be setting that standard in the public realm. And you can work through the implications of that. To be ethical is to look to a fixed standard. What's right and wrong? What is that standard? God Himself. God is the standard of what's right and wrong. And as His image bearers, we represent that as His vice regents in created order. 
Listen to how even Jesus spoke to this issue in himself while on this earth. In John 4, 14, verse 30 and 31, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. So what is Jesus' ethical norm? Jesus' ethical norm is doing what the Father tells him to do. Jesus looked to the Godhead for right and wrong. Jesus operated according to a standard. He himself being God. So therefore, what do you think we ought to do as his vice regents and image bearers? We look outside of time and space to the God who created ethical norms as our standard. We have for us a created code of ethics in Scripture revealed in the nature and character of God. And even humanity in its broken state has a conscience, which Paul tells us in Romans 2, 14 to 15, gives testimony to the fact that there's a standard outside of themselves that they are to adhere to and will be their judge on the last day. So we're ethical people. This is why we have to be... I'm getting into application. I'll... I'll get there. I'll get there. Third, we are spiritual beings. We're spiritual beings. John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We are similar to God spiritually, meaning there is an immaterial nature to every single one of us. We are souls. Now, how that's divided up is not super clear in Scripture. So be careful with things you read. And drawing too many lines into the nature of man. We are simply souls. How you divide that up can be a matter of debate. Which we're not going to do here. That's not the point of this time. What I want you to see is we are spiritual beings. And we image that forth as spiritual beings. Because God is spirit. We're not merely biological creatures. And we can't merely be treated as biological entities. Meaning everything about us is complex. And what a moral system wants to do is divide that out and treat one and ignore the other. We got this a little later on when we come to application, but I got to say it here. Meaning we can't ignore the supernatural, spiritual, even demonic realm. And we'll get to that in the applications. Just because it enters our mind doesn't mean it came from the Lord or even ourselves. To be spiritual means also to be immortal. Not eternal. God's eternal. We're not eternal. We're immortal. Meaning we don't cease to exist. We have a beginning, but we will not cease to exist. Which is why it matters where you're going to spend eternity. Because you're not going for a big dirt nap when you pass. You will forever glorify Jesus Christ in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Functioning in created order without sin. Or be punished by God forever. Separated from Him. And a hell created for Satan and his angels. We're immortal creatures. We have deep and complex emotions such as joy, sadness, anger, and fear. And these can't just be merely broken out as mere biological realities. Because we're not mere biological realities. These can be mistreated with words, with actions, with looks. And they can be hurt and broken deeper and further than sin has already done and our being born. So we're spiritual creatures. We're also intellectual next. We're intellectual creatures. Notice what God does in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Let us make man in our image. If you work that out, this is a thought 
and reasoned plan. God looks at himself. The Father looks at the Son. The Son looks at the Spirit. And they look at each other and go, Hey, according to our eternal plan, let's now make man in our image. This is reason. This is thought. And we're created in that image, meaning we can reason, we can think. We are thinking creatures. And one of the things your world and culture tells some of you is you're dumb. Simply because you don't have a, an academic skill set that the education system in and of itself may value above other things. Building with your hands isn't a lack of intelligence. It's different intelligence. Just because you can make an A doesn't mean you can survive. And there's a lot of people who take a standardized test and score perfect on their ACT and whatever PCS and DCT, whatever the scores are, but they cannot function socially. There's more to intelligence than making an A. We are thinkers. We are complex creatures that can reason and think. Meaning we apply our thinking and our reasoning in the skills God has given us and we value them all because it's an image of God issue. An education system trains one. Which my boys, I mean, this is about application, I'm so sorry. The implications, they just come. If you start unpacking them, they're there, right? You don't even have to wait to the application section of the sermon. You should be thinking right now because you're thinking creatures, right? That, that we boys are not necessarily made to just sit and take notes all day. But our system is set up to make them sit and take notes all day. You know what I'm saying? There's a, you're thinkers, and God made thinking to happen in multiple ways. Which is why, eh, okay, I'm going to stop. We're thinkers, so it's okay to be thinking. And don't buy the lie that you're dumb. There are no, no people here that are mere mortals. You are immortal, and you're created the image of God, and you can think. We're relational. We're relational. John 17, 3 to 5, and this is eternal life. That they know you. Hmm, that's different, isn't it? This is eternal life, that they know you. And the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So the epitome, the very base foundation of eternal life is to know God. Meaning if you're in Christ, you're living eternal life right now. Or you're ignoring eternal life by not seeking to know God. If you're in Christ, we now can know God personally. Meaning he's relational and we're relational creating that image. I mean, we we were made to image forth relationships with each other and with God. We're relational creatures. It's never enough. I joke about being an introvert. Introvert is never an excuse to isolate myself from people. The Proverbs actually say the person who isolates himself is a fool. Introversion and extroversion is simply where you get your energy. It's not an excuse to isolate ourselves from one another. We were made to be relational. Because God is relational. And we're made to be in relationship with one another. We're capable of multiple levels of relationship because God is in relationship with Himself and we're made in that image. We're made to be relating to God. We're made to relate to each other. We're made to relate to each other, male and female, in marriage. We're made to relate to one another in family. And it doesn't take us long to start seeing how Satan breaks that down. Next, we're physical. We're physical, and this is going to be the last one I share with you because we've got to get to some implications in 8 minutes and 32 seconds. We're physical. We're physical. I want to say this on the front end. This one can be a little debated in the theological world. 
And I take a position that is probably the least popular position, but I'm compelled with Scripture, and I just want to say to you, it's an open-handed issue for me. You deal with this how you need to deal with it, okay? But since I'm a talker today, I'm going to share with you my opinion. We're physical creatures, clearly. Physical, right? Physical creatures. Well, how does that image forth God? Well, that's a good question. Genesis 18, 1-2. I don't have time to go read it. Uh, Yahweh, the Lord... Right? All caps, Lord. Which is when you're reading your Bible and you see all caps, Lord. That's the English way of saying this is the covenant personal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh comes walking with two angels in physical form up to Abraham's tent. Has a meal with him. Daniel 3.25, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Fiery furnace. And he looks in and says there are four people in there. And that fourth one's like the Son of God. So when Jesus comes talking about being the Son of God, start drawing the connections, going, hey, wait a second. Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. I saw Yahweh sitting, physically sitting on a throne. John 1, 14, speaking of Jesus, He took on flesh. The Word, Jesus, the Son, took on flesh and dwelt among us. It can be said that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, exists in a John 4.24 light reality. You can go look up John 4.24 later. As the one in whose physical image we shadow. 1 Corinthians 15.51-55 tells us we will be resurrected one day with a new body that won't ever break again. And it's not changing its current form. It's going to look like this, it just won't break again. And Paul uses the language of, you know, there's this kind of flesh and there's fish and there's birds and there's cows. He doesn't say all that. I'm just, I'm, I'm paraphrasing for you. All kinds of different flesh. And it's like this. But in that age, we're going to have a different kind. And it will be raised incorruptible. It won't ever rot again. It won't break anymore. But it's going to look like this. John's even going to say in 1 John chapter 2, when he comes, we will see him and we will be like him because we'll be seeing him as he is. Meaning when we're raised, we don't cease to be physical. It just won't break no more. Therefore, as physical beings, we reflect something of the nature of God physically. And here's my unpopular, it's orthodox. It's, it's, it's a branch, it's, it's okay, alright? It's just the least popular opinion. And that's okay. My hunch is, we look physically like the eternal Son of God, Jesus. Not like... Faith like like him, like I don't look like you, you don't like me, but physically. If Jesus walked up to Abraham's tent in Genesis 18, 1 to 2, then maybe we look a little bit like Jesus looks in his eternal state. Which has implications on how we treat each other and how we treat this body. So application. What do we do with this? We have the ability to manage, here we go, we have the ability to manage created order as vice regents of creation. Why is it? Why is it that transcendental, whacked out people care more about created order than Christians? And some Christians will be the first ones to throw their trash out of their vehicle on the side of the road. You hear more Christians with a theology that says, use it all up. 
it's going to burn anyway. Then you do Christians that go, hey, I'm a vice regent of God and created order and I should steward this. Which one of those is more biblical? Number two. So as Christians, we have the capacity to manage created order. Listen, vocations, your job is part of managing created order. Vocations exist because there's chaos somewhere that needs to be ordered. And society has gathered around it and put a system in place to manage that chaos. That's what we call domains of society. And as Christians, we have an opportunity to engage in our created wiring and skill set to be a vice regent of God over created order. And there's nowhere on the planet that's immune to that. Meaning there's nowhere Christians can't go and work and use their vocations to be a vice regent of Jesus Christ, fix what's broken and make disciples. Luke 10, Jesus said, heal and then say to them, the kingdom has come near. Yes and yes. Meaning as vice regents of God, we don't abuse, take advantage of, we manage and steward. There's a ton of things we could say there. But recognize when Jesus is fixing things, he's saving people and fixing created order. You're going to be living here forever. It's going to be renewed. And our imaging forth God now is taking care of it now. You you go do a little more deeper application there. Here we go. Secondly, we have the ability as the church to be ground zero for the ethical standard of what God says to the whole world. Meaning we better be careful with our public voice and make sure we're not projecting a cultural morality but an eternal ethical standard of right and wrong. The church is ground zero of new created order. Do a little biblical theology for you. Do you understand you're the first fruits of new creation? Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah, right? John in the Revelation. I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Do you know that's you? You're the first fruits of new created order. And as such, there's no other place on the planet that epitomizes more and more righteously an ethical standard of right and wrong. Therefore, we need to be careful whose team we jump on and make sure we're on Jesus' team. Remember Joshua in the battle of Jericho? Joshua's hanging out. He's walking around. And he sees the captain of the Lord's army. And what does Joshua do? You for us or them? What did he say? Neither. I'm captain of the Lord's army. So Joshua, you better get on my side, hoss. Right? So it's not whose side you on. It's, um, I better be on Jesus' side. See what I'm saying? So we have to be careful and discern what's moral and what's ethical. Because there is a distinction biblically. Probably more than you asked for today. But got to give it to you. Meaning there's some things that matter. We are a city set on a hill. And we are to be a place that is looked to when all things are falling apart. The world needs to look up on the hill and go, man, there's a foundation I can set my foot on. What is it with you people? And historically, that has proven out where the church has taken root. (laughs) We don't have time to do a history lesson. You got 43 seconds. Help me, Jesus. We have the ability to think and act as though the physical is not the final say as we consider spiritual realities in our worldview. 
Remember, we're spiritual beings. So we have the ability to think and act as though the physical is not the final say. There are people who want to tell you when we're considering humanity, don't talk about demons. Don't talk about what the Bible says about spiritual realities. Because our innate worldview says that it's not that. It's got to be this. And that's a sinful position. How we care for ourselves is as spiritual as it is biological. We've got to ask some key questions. What unseen realities do we allow access to ourselves? Do you understand sin and intentional rebellion against God opens the door to demonic reality? I know as people who are, who are naturalists in our worldview, whether you, you claim that or not, it's the air you breathe where we're automatically, automatically predisposed because of how we view life to ignore unseen realities? Prove it. Show me, right? There's some things you can't empirically prove but are real. And how we care for ourselves is as much paying attention to what we let have access to us as much as the biological component. How much spiritual warfare is affecting my current state? Am I aware of my self-talk? You need to evaluate what comes into your thinking. Is it an accusatory statement? And we'll get to that here in just a second. So just pause. Let me go to the next one. We have the ability to be thinkers and planners and creators. So it's never an excuse to not plan and think and create. There's no place in the kingdom of God to merely fly by the seat of our pants. God is a God who said, let us make man in our image. And set forth an eternal plan. God's a planner. He's an executor. Therefore, there must be plans and execution. If there are no plans and execution, it's not necessarily biblical. Or even Christian, for that matter. We have the ability to be in relationship with God, with the local church, and with the world. Meaning, as relational creatures, we have this ability to be in relationship. We have a fight on our hands as daughters and sons of God to relate rightly to others. And here's where I said I was going to go a little further in this. And to relate rightly to ourselves. How do you begin to relate to other people? Start with yourself. As creating the image of God, we're relational beings. And some of our relationship with others is affected because we have a negative relationship with ourselves. And some of that's not all our fault. I'm not going to tell you my whole story, but I came broke. Hard broke relationally. And it didn't, I didn't do it to myself. It was done to me. Massive trauma as a child. Massive trauma. And I have a tendency to hear things in my thinking and my speaking to myself that are untrue. And if I let them have serve and hold serve, I am a mess. In order for me to rightly relate to you and not mistreat you, nor say things to you that are improper, i got to fight a fight that's unseen to you by myself first. Meaning I have to let truth begin to be the dominant voice in my head. That I'm not the sum total of what Satan's accusations tell me I am. That have been inserted through the evil of other people. I didn't ask for it, but it came to me. And i got to deal with it. I'm going to deal with it in truth or in error. This is Zechariah 3, 1 to 4. This keeps me sane. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. 
or standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Name Satan even means accuser. What is Satan's chief role to accuse you, to accuse me, to who? The Father. Look at this next verse. And the Lord said to Satan, not me, not you. The Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Listen, man, when you hear those accusing voices, just stop and go, Jesus, will you help me? <laughs> will, you, will you speak to that, Lord? Will you rebuke that, Lord? And this is where the ministry of the Holy Spirit is key in the life of the body. Where the Holy Spirit goes to bat for you when you don't know how to pray, Romans 8. He prays for you in groanings too deep for words. You're going to have to lean on that. Lean into that hard. And let Him rebuke that untruth. And then you start saying, that's untrue. I'm not accused before God. In fact, the cross speaks a word for me. The cross speaks acceptance for me. The cross speaks righteousness for me. The cross speaks wholeness for me. That's an untrue thing. And I shove it away and I rebuke it in Jesus' name. That sounds a little charismatic, but dog, that's fact. You're going to have to walk like that if you're going to be in right relationship with yourself so you can be in right relationship with other people. Does that make sense? There's an unseen reality happening in this room right now. Your thoughts. Because right now they're probably neurons firing all over the place. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And this is where creating the image of God, we have the ability to think and bring order to those things. And it is a war. I'm not going to lie. It's a fight. It's a scrap. It is a flat out fight. But it's winnable. Because <laughs> you got Jesus. But you got to fight it. Senior year. Clock's off. Dang it. Senior year. I ain't going to say his name because he still works somewhere here in town. I saw him not too long ago. Kind of chuckled to myself. We beat him at wiffle ball in PE. Senior year was awesome. <laughs> My senior year in high school. Had a girls PE class. It was awesome. Me and Ryan Edwards and Chad Nogger. It was amazing. Ryan probably delivers some of your UPS packages. So if you run into Ryan Edwards, just ask him about our girls PE class. Good time. Good time. Had playing wiffle ball in another PE class because I also had APR. Awesome. We beat them, destroyed them actually in wiffle ball, right? Wiffle ball didn't matter, but we won. Treated like it mattered. This dude pulls a knife on me after PE class. I'm not advocating for what I did. I'm just telling you what I did. So he pulls a knife on me after class, and I kind of like this kind of stuff. I appreciate a good fight. So I just absolutely destroyed his face. With about two shots straight on, broke his nose, he dropped the knife. I picked the knife up, went to the principal and said, Hey, dude, pulled the knife on me. I think I just busted him up. He's bleeding. You might want to go look for him. He got suspended. I got to go free. <laughs> Here's my point. Here's my point. Here's my point. I can let him stick me, or I can hit him. It was a fight. I didn't ask for the fight, but the fight came to me. I'm not advocating. I'm not telling you, you got to do what I did. I'm just saying that's what I did. All right, but here's the point. There was a fight to be had. He sticks me or I might stick him. So here we go. You have to... Re- <laughs> Miss Georgia, I love you. You're the best. Special effects from row two. You, you have to recognize that the enemy's coming. And he's probably already attacking. And you're going to get in the fight or you're going to let him stick you. Because you are a physical and a spiritual being and there is stuff happening relationally. So engage with the truth because it's in the truth we'll be renewed in the knowledge of our Savior. 
then we have the ability to care for humanity and our physical well-being as well. We have a responsibility to care physically for ourselves and for other people. We're not just spiritual, we're also physical. We have to protect and defend life, including each other's, the unborn, and the old, and everything in between. And that can be done without compromising any political reality, just so you know. It's not an either or, it's a yes and yes for the Christian. We have to protect our, our physical life. There are things you need to give physical space to because it's destructive. Put space between you and it or them if necessary. But we are to protect physical well-being. We have the ability to represent how God feels and cares about humanity. Because we're image bearers, God cares about us. Because we're made in His image. As a matter of fact, Matthew 5, and 45, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. He cares for those who don't believe in Him by giving them rain to grow crops so that they can help restrain the fall even though they don't believe and will spend an eternity in hell. And therefore, His basis of loving them is Him loving them. Therefore, we are to love humanity because all humanity is created in the image of God, whether it's broken or being redeemed in Christ. Meaning Christians are the epicenter of love for all people everywhere all the time. Radical, crazy love. Love that redeems. And Jesus, John even tells us that Jesus told them, this is how they're going to know your mind by how you love. Finally, this is it. Not too bad. Not too bad. We have the ability to glorify God. We're made to glorify God. You're made to glory in God. God glories in God. We learned this last week. God's not an idolater. Therefore, the basis of our not being an idolater is God's not an idolater. So therefore, the only thing we're to glory in is God. Therefore, when we glory in God, we're not guilty of idolatry. We're made to glory in God. So as image bearers, we're the only creatures on the planet that can do that. You know that? Animals can't do this. Animals animals can't do it. You are the only ones that can glorify God. We're made to glory in Him. Our highest and greatest joy is to find our fulfillment in Christ and make much of Him. The basis of sin is not enjoying God enough. Finding delight in something other than the Lord. Lose yourself in Jesus. Think less of yourself and more of Jesus. And then, finally, you've got to sing. You've got to sing. Zephaniah 3, 16, 17 is absolutely, again, one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it shows us this picture of God, not as this stoic. We have a tendency to read onto God images that the Bible doesn't give us. And as a result, we'll read that onto ourselves, by the way, because you're image bearers. Just be careful with that little trick. God's not stoic. You can't read your Bible and walk away seeing God as pinky, pinky guy, stoic. Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17 projects this beautiful image of God as a shouting, zealous warrior who sings over his people. Delights in them. And how dare I stand and go, I will not. That's not what he's doing. David gives us a beautiful picture. Don't you do what he did exactly. But David came into the city before the ark dancing 
And there's even a song they wrote back in the day of the passion stuff called Undignified. Where David just got undignified before the Lord. It danced before the Lord in joy. And he is our image of Christ. He is the one that points us to the kingship of Jesus. And this Zephaniah 3 passage gives us this picture of a raucous, joyfully defiant king enjoying his people. And then he says to us in 150 Psalms, you do the same thing. So I just want to say to you, part of the way you'll image forth God today is to joyfully, defiantly sing of his grace. So you want to give it a shot? You want to practice? Let's do it. Father, in Jesus' name, we, we want to uh, be joyfully defiant against the curse and against the enemy and against the things that stand against your image perfectly reflected in us. So one of the ways we get to do that now is to sing. So Lord, help us to do that, not professionally, but defiantly. Help us to do it, Lord. Help us to do it. We, we ask also that you would work in us in such a manner that you fix all those things that are broken. There's nobody in this room not broke. I'm chief broken. But we also know you fix and repair. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do a work in our souls, in our bodies, even now, so that we can relate to you good and to each other good and to the world good. Whatever that needs to be. So much we can't do. We can't put our hands on some of that and fix it, but you can And so we pray for a supernatural work now in our souls of repairing and healing and making right. Would you do that? Would you be pleased to do that and glorify your name, exalt your great name, and that you do this for your people? So be exalted, be lifted up.